Well, today, church, we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis 37 to 50, which we've titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. And so this morning, I want, to open, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 57. Young disciples, there's the first answer that you need for your guide. You can find that on page 34 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is Forgetful and Fruitful. And how becoming aware of God's amazing work makes us self-forgetful and thus fruitful. So I'm going to lay this out in the same format as the inverted X from the sermon series artwork. So let me explain this starting at the bottom. Unpacking five things. God's amazing work in Israel, in Joseph, in Jesus, in you, and in all nations. All right, young disciples, you need that for your guide as well. This is how God is working in each of these five things. And we'll come back to them as we go. So if you don't get them all now, you can get them later. Well, since today's passage is so long, rather than standing to read it all at once, I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But I want to say this. Let us posture our hearts in such a way that we can say in regard to God's word, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I got another Chick-fil-A story for you this morning. All right. When Katie and I got married and moved to Louisville, our first job was working together at Chick-fil-A in Mall St. Matthews, as you have heard. And I was only three months removed from living in East Africa. And so when I became the waffle fry guy in a kitchen full of seminary students... If you're a seminary student, I love you. But when I became the waffle fry guy in a kitchen full of seminary students, I kind of felt like Joseph in the pit. So it was hours of getting burned by popping peanut oil while listening to guys debate theology. And so I was not a fun person to be around. And that was until Katie and I developed relationships with three immigrant co-workers, one from West Africa, one from Mexico, and one from Bhutan. And so while the debates carried on in the kitchen, during lulls in the workflow, we began sharing stories of Jesus with our new friends. And they loved them. Especially one in particular, a single mom named Christina. She was super quiet, but she would come alive during the stories. And she always wanted to hear more. And so it was from these moments that God helped me to begin to forget my affliction and to see his amazing work. Now as we walk through this section of Genesis and we zoom in on Joseph's story in particular, like it's easy for us to forget the wider context, the wider work. The author, probably Moses, isn't just giving readers character stories. He's laying out this. God's amazing work in Israel. So this is our first consideration this morning. As Mark mentioned last week, the purpose for which God sovereignly chose a man named Abram back in chapter 12 was to create a people, the family of God, Israel, through whom he would bless all the families of the earth. We read of them later from an Israelite background believer named Paul. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, 
who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so this is the good news that Moses is ultimately pointing us toward in Genesis. God is a God of the mess. And from this messy yet beloved family will come the Christ who will bless the mess of all nations. And so as God is sovereignly working toward that, he is setting his little family apart from the nations who don't know him. Therefore, in Genesis, we get glimpses of how much they are in contrast to other nations. And at this point in history, there is no greater contrast than that between Israel and Egypt. Now, we could take this up as the primary theme of this passage, but I just want to mention it here at the beginning so that you look for it as we walk through the chapter today. Remember this, y'all. Pharaoh was viewed as a god in that time. And Egypt was the most powerful and sophisticated kingdom that the world had ever seen. And so in context, you've got people reading the book of Genesis, or at least hearing the book of Genesis, having come out of slavery in Egypt, and we see are tempted to go, man, that place back there was a lot better than this mess here. We're out here in the desert just going around in circles. What is the point of this? They're tempted to view Pharaoh as a god and Egypt as his kingdom as a better one than the one true God. And yet... Through God's amazing work in Israel, their only hope for salvation would be found in the one true God through the working of his suffering servant, Joseph. And so let's turn to him as our second consideration this morning. God's amazing work in Joseph. This is where we'll spend most of our time today. So last we saw of Joseph, after humbly serving his fellow prisoners, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and blessing them with God's interpretations of their dreams, and asking them to simply be remembered for his innocence, we read this at the end of chapter 40. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Y'all, how devastating would that be? Like, how long did it take before Joseph came to realize, like, he's not coming back. And I'm forgotten. Again. So now listen to this at the beginning of chapter 41. After two whole years. Young disciples, that's how long the cupbearer forgot Joseph. You need that for your guides. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So no wonder Pharaoh is, quote, troubled. So this is a word used elsewhere to describe being too stressed to speak or even sleep. The reason why is the nightmare he has pictures Egypt, this self-sufficient agricultural oasis, tucked in between two deserts, being eaten alive, so to speak. Their power and prosperity is being threatened, but no one can explain how or why. And they are being confronted with this truth as any national disaster or natural disaster does. What does the truth matter, Pharaoh can say? I have the power to release you or crush you, Joseph. But when that power is taken away, then he and his people must face that they are still completely dependent on the one true God and the word of his servant. The story continues in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, He interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Y'all, let me just ask this. What do you think is going through Joseph's head as he is looking in the mirror and shaving? You know? For so long he's been forgotten, but not just by the cupbearer and Potiphar, but by his own Hebrew family. Fourteen years, because the passage will later tell us that he's 30 years old when this happens. Fourteen years standing there shaving kind of a weird thing that we'd have this detail about him shaving but think about this by shaving which was a very egyptian act that probably included shaving all over he's preparing himself to be presentable to pharaoh to project an egyptian identity to stand before the most powerful person on the planet and be seen remembered this is his moment So do you see the temptation to forget about the God who had seemingly forgotten about him? See that? Maybe you have experienced something similar when you're looking in the mirror and shaving or putting on your makeup. Some of you may have felt that even this morning as you prepared to come to church today, right? I feel forgotten So what identity am I going to project so that I can be seen in a certain light? What am I going to make of myself today so that I can forget the emptiness that gnaws at me? Will Joseph choose this road? Let's see. Verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. 
And I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh, for the first time in a long time, rendered powerless. Joseph, for the first time in a long time, rendered powerful. Here's his moment, y'all. Pharaoh asks, are you the man? And Joseph responds with this, what we translate as a phrase, but is actually one exclamatory word in Hebrew. Are you the man? Joseph says, yes, I am. No, he says the exact opposite. No, it is not in me. Now, Joseph has gone from the boy who says, I've got the interpretation to the man who says, not in me, God. So we see that Joseph is forgetful, but not of God. He's self-forgetful. Do you all know what I mean by that phrase, self-forgetful? I heard this. Pastor Tim Keller describes it like this. If we were to meet a truly self-forgetful person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. The thing that we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seemed totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. The question is, how does that happen? How do you become self-forgetful? Well, some would say, man, this happens when you become a Christian. But I don't know about you, but the thing about becoming a Christian is, it doesn't bring your selfishness to its end. It brings your awareness of your selfishness to its beginning. Okay? Let me give you a parallel example whether you are a Christian or not. You get married. Suddenly you realize what? I am very selfish. Okay? You have children. Suddenly you realize what? Man, I am very selfish about my time, my space, my ways. Maybe you're not here today and you're single, you're not married, or you've not had children. But you go to something like youth camp and suddenly you share a few days in someone else's space that's not your own. What do you realize? Man. I am selfish. Could you please move your clothes and shoes out of my way, out of my space? This is us at heart. And so the more closely you follow Jesus, the more you see how centered you are on your own interests. And so what's required, Keller would say, is a deep inner transformation, just like we see taking place in Joseph. And so I believe in order for Joseph to come to this moment and be self-forgetful, it has required nothing less than every last second of 14 years of deep inner transformation. If you think about 14 years, you can compare it to other parts of Genesis, such as the length of time that Abraham waited for God to fulfill the promise that he would have a son. Or... The amount of time, exactly 14 years, that Jacob had to wait laboring for 
Rachel. You see the pattern here? This is how deep inner transformation comes about in God's people. The pit is part of the process. And God goes down in the pit with us. Sometimes that's all you need in the pit. It's not to get up out of it, but to realize that God went down into it with you. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, describes this process as the trials that God uses to strip away the trust that we once had in ourselves. I can do this. Wait a minute, no, I can't. It is not in me. God. Joseph, you see, is a broken man. And by that word broken, I mean tamed like a horse, weaned like a child. The story continues in verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, all right, young disciples, I'm getting ready to describe Pharaoh's dream here. You'll need that for your guide. Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, many of you are familiar with this section, and I think it's pretty self-explanatory. So I just want to focus in on verse 32. Joseph says two things here that I think give us a glimpse into the mysterious process of his deep inner transformation. First, he says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. If you want to think of it another way, it's like basically saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. But how did Joseph make this connection between doubling and God's amazing work? I think it was from years of taking his pain to God instead of away from him. Not looking for the lesson, but looking for the Lord. You see the difference? 
man, if I could just figure out why I'm going through this, I would be okay. But God holds back why you're going through it because you don't need the lesson yet. You need the Lord first. So think about this. Doubling. Joseph had two dreams. Joseph's brothers had two plans. Joseph's robe was taken two times. Joseph was thrown into two pits. In prison, Joseph encountered two palace prisoners and interpreted two dreams. Joseph had been made successful two times. Joseph had been forgotten in prison two years. And now Pharaoh has had two dreams. See the doubling? It's kind of easy to see once you see it. As Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, it's like God's feet marching through this story. One, two, one, two. The thing is fixed by God, and he will bring it about. The thing is fixed by God, and he will bring it about. Joseph had been searching, and God had been helping him to see. Not just the lesson. But the Lord. But notice the other thing that Joseph says. Not just God will bring it about, but God will what? Shortly, quickly bring it about. How is it that a man who has experienced nothing but God working slowly can say with assurance that God will work quickly? How is that? Man, if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, Pharaoh, this is the interpretation, but you know what? Who knows how long that it will take for God to get around to it? Probably like 14 years or something. I think Joseph was able to say this because of years of taking his pain to God instead of away from him. Not looking for the lesson, but looking for the Lord. Your time has not yet come. Your time has not yet come. But Joseph, when it comes... Like a mother to a newborn baby, you'll quickly forget all the hardship. Listen, y'all. God is not on our timetable. He's not. And thank God that he's not. You know why? Think about if you put upon your newborn baby your timetable for them. You know? Like, you need to get it together. You need to learn how to change your own diaper. You need to learn how to feed yourself breakfast so I can sleep in a little bit longer. You need to learn how to put your clothes on, go to school. And by the way, you need to learn how to graduate from high school and go off to college. What? No. A good parent doesn't project that kind of timetable on their child. They give them time and space to grow and change and move. And they enjoy it all along the way. And they're present for it. That. It's what God does for us in the midst of our waiting and affliction. So remember that this author has said earlier that Joseph was quickly taken from prison. You remember that back a few verses ago? Quickly taken about. Well, it could be that this entire exchange from pit to palace, from prisoner to prime minister, took no more than one hour. That'll make your head spin, won't it? (laughs) My goodness, listen to this, verse 33. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. 
and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 30 years of waiting and suffering inverted in one hour. God works slowly that he may work quickly. People of God, God works slowly that he may work quickly. But let me just ask this. Think about this. If Joseph had not experienced this deep inner transformation over the past 14 years, like What do you think he would have done as the functionally most powerful person on the planet? Look out. Well, I think there are all kinds of things that we could say about this power going to his head. But here's the main thing that came to my mind this week that I thought, well, he might want this if he didn't have that deep inner transformation. You know what it is? Revenge. To forget his God and to destroy God's people. To become an enemy of the gospel. So one of the graces of his self-forgetfulness is a humility that is totally interested in the needs of others rather than himself. So that he can use power for good to bless rather than curse. But in addition to this new humility, Sinclair Ferguson points out a few other characteristics that, that come, this fruit that comes from Joseph's affliction. First of all, a new contentment. Joseph isn't consumed with his circumstances, but he has become like a weaned child with its mother. Also a new wisdom. Before, Joseph was immature and naive, but now he speaks to Pharaoh as a wise and discerning man. Also, a new courage. Don't miss, think about this, don't miss that Joseph tells Pharaoh to make a 20% hike in taxes and then to store it up right in front of the people over the course of seven years of economic prosperity. 
Can you imagine what would happen if a president did that today? My goodness, we all be after him, right? This is courageous. It takes some guts. And so I want you to see that being a broken man brings weakness. But in God's economy, weakness is strength, courage. And this is the power of giving yourself to God's refining fire. You become all that God created you to be. A person clearly in whom is the Spirit of God. And a blessing to the nations who say because of you... God speaks and lives. I don't know him, but as I hear of him in this person, I see that he speaks and lives. And I use that phrase intentionally because it's likely the meaning of the name that Pharaoh gives to Joseph. This is the in you and through you exchange of the Christian life. God works his transformation in so that he can work his transformation out. Look at this in the text, verse 46. And Joseph went where? Out. Pharaoh brought him in. Joseph goes out. This is the second time that Moses uses the word out in this story. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Some of y'all just need to go home and, and sit on verses 50 to 52. And there's so much that could be said about the naming of Joseph's sons. But one of the biggest things to see is that these are not Egyptian names. He may have contextualized well by taking on the appearance of an Egyptian. But his heart was still the Lord's. These are Hebrew names. And again, he may have forgotten his hardship and he may have forgotten the homesickness over his family. But he has not forgotten his God. He's been crowned with a bride, and he's raising up children of the one true God. And so what flows from his being forgetful is being fruitful. But it's not a fruitfulness that comes because the hardship is over. You see? There's still pain here. When his brothers come back around later, it's going to bring up some bad memories that he thought were long gone and worked through. There's still pain here. But there's fruitfulness in the pain because it's taken to the Lord instead of away from him. Some of you may have read Betty Smith's novel, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And it pictures this this lone, beautiful tree that somehow emerges out of nothing but cement, which is this representative of the author somehow blossoming in the midst of poverty. 
And this is the picture that we are getting of Joseph here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. From the worst thing, he brings the best thing. From the most despised, he exalts. So do not despise the broken. Glory in it. That's what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians when he says, So I have learned to rejoice in my weaknesses. Let them come. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I'm fruitful. And look at how the fruit keeps growing. How Joseph is made a pillar on which the the world is set by God. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished. The people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, and young disciples, this is how Joseph fulfilled part of God's covenant with Abraham. He blessed the nations. Moreover, all The earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Y'all get this. When the whole world has run out of what it needs most, what does Pharaoh say? Go to Joseph. Do whatever he tells you. And so to the Lord's suffering servant, The whole world runs. And he has the immeasurable supply of all they need. Absolutely amazing. This story is absolutely amazing. I ain't done it justice at all. This is God's amazing work in Joseph. And I know that's a lot. But if you'll bear with me, there are three more things that I want to consider from this that are actually far more important than Joseph's story itself. First, it's this. God's amazing work in Jesus. If you've been paying close attention so far, then you're probably noticing, as Sinclair Ferguson says, that this whole thing just seems like a trial run for Jesus Christ. Church, look at Joseph but see the Lord's suffering servant. The one whose years are spent in obscurity, but suddenly rises to the world stage at age 30. The one who at his baptism, the father affirms that there is none more discerning and wise in whom is the Spirit of God. The one who shows us that his coming is fixed by God in the constant doubling of his teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you. The one who, when the wedding has run out of what it needs most, his mother says what? Go to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. 
The one who trusts that God works slowly, that he may work quickly as he says over and over, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But when it does come, he is completely self-forgetful. Betrayed. Humiliated. Falsely accused. Imprisoned. Forgotten. Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? You talking to me about truth? What is truth? In other words, what does the truth matter? I have the power to release you or crucify you. But rather than taking his power away, Jesus remains dependent on his father. And so what flows from his being forgetful is his being fruitful. And all his waiting and suffering inverted in an instant. He's raised from the dead and set over all the house of his father. He's given the name above every name of whom God says, bow the knee. He's exalted as the one to whom the whole world runs because he has the immeasurable supply of all they need. And he's rewarded with a bride. And he's raising up children of the one true God. Do you see him, church? You look at Joseph, but you see in Jesus. This is our Savior. Look at him. And if you see him, then here's why Jesus is at the center of this X. Because if Jesus doesn't come as the better Joseph, then the story of Joseph and Israel have no relevance today. But if he does come and by his work inverts the whole thing from pit to palace, then we can talk about God's amazing work in you. For those of you who can read a book like Genesis and not just say, man, these people are a mess. I'm not like that. But you can read the book of Genesis and you can say, I'm a mess. Like I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I'm worshiping false gods. Like I love the seemingly powerful and sophisticated kingdoms of man, namely my own little kingdom. If you can say that of yourself and then turn to the God of the mess in the name of Jesus and you come broken and you bow the knee to the resurrected king, then Joseph's story becomes your story, except infinitely greater than prisoner to prime minister. Many of you know the words of Ephesians 2, but I want you to hear them afresh today through the lens of Genesis 41 and the story of Joseph. And you were dead, forgotten, discarded in the pit, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, there's Egypt, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now work in the sons of disobedience, there's Pharaoh. You're following Satan and his kingdom away from the one true God. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No control, imprisoned to your sin. But God, being rich in mercy, did not forget you, but because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were discarded, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, not because of anything you've done. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the palace of Pharaoh. No! In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's infinitely greater than Joseph. So that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, showering you with honor and glory in Christ. And so that we do not forget that all this glory and honor and power has not come because of anything we've done, for by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says again. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It is not in me. God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He brought you in so you walk it out. And there it is. There is God's amazing work in you worked out. Didn't raise you up for the purpose of yourself or your own family or people. There's more than that that he had prepared you for. God has so blessed his messy yet beloved family Israel that now in you another part of the families of the earth has been blessed. Like remind yourself, pinch yourself every once in a while to wake up to the reality that you are not Israel. You're not the epicenter of God's story. You were of the nations who did not know him. And yet now you not only get to be a recipient of the gospel, but you get to be a participant. In what? In this. God's amazing work in all nations. And this is why Antioch exists, or at least is why we say we exist. To display Christ's glory, what? Among the nations. Joseph was God's faithful servant in Egypt, and therefore a blessing to one lost nation. But God had bigger plans, didn't he? He raised Joseph up to be a blessing to all kinds of nations who were gathered to him. Isaiah 60, verse 3, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. When we are faithful to pursue intentional gospel relationships among our American neighbors, we are a blessing to one lost nation. And that's wonderful. We should be. But God has bigger plans than that, doesn't he? We've been raised up to be a blessing to all kinds of nations who have been gathered to us. Yes, we send out, we distribute our members to the nations. And on behalf of Antioch Church, they are proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those nations. But y'all, the nations don't been gathered to us. And that's why this church was planted here. 
unless we lose our purpose. So I want to I have this application for you today. If you will walk away from this sermon, glorying in Jesus and then doing something from it, walk away asking God to do a deep, a, a work of, of deep inner transformation so that you can be forgetful, so that you can be fruitful. Case in point. When I finally got over myself enough to be self-forgetful in my Chick-fil-A affliction, and I took greater interest in others, that's about the time that we had Christina and her daughter over for dinner. And we shared with her the story of creation to Christ. And at the end, we had that awkward moment where it's like, what do you think? And she said this, in very simple English. When I was in Mexico, I had a friend who invited me to church. And I didn't go. But when I moved to Louisville, I had a dream. And in that dream, a man in white came to me in that church and he said, I am Jesus. I want you to come to me. She said, so I've just been waiting for somebody to tell me how to come to him. So of course I believe. Y'all, this is a single mom from Mexico, Catholic background, living in the South End, given a vision of Jesus, just waiting on someone to tell her how to come to him. This is not Pakistan. They're right here in our midst. And that's the amazing work that is laid before us. Just waiting. And here's the amazing work that made it possible. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread though it would cost him so much. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As Mark said last week, this is the new stuff. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing that Jesus Christ is still doing a work. And it's amazing. And I, for one, will not let it be a work that is only done out there among the nations. I want to see what he's doing out there done here too. I don't know about you. Our tradition here, if you're a baptized believer, is to come forward and to come forward broken. Being tamed by God, being, being like a weaned child, leaning on your father, knowing your need of him. Break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and take it. If you're here today and you've not been baptized, we want to invite you to take a step of obedience in front of the entire congregation to proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you can take communion. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is your opportunity. This table has not been laid before you today. The table that's been laid for for you in reality 
is the true body of Jesus broken and the true blood of Jesus poured out in love for you that you could be restored to him. There'll be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. And we recognize your glorious work in Israel, in Joseph, in Jesus, in us who know you, and in all nations. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Thank you for your amazing work. But your work isn't finished, Lord. Maybe that's why the New Testament is 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 so much more narrow in our Bibles than the Old Testament. Because you're still doing a work. There's more who are to be brought in leading up to that day of your return when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered around your throne. Lord, we want to be a part of that work. And so let us come broken this morning, longing, dependent upon you, to be part of that work, whatever it looks like in our lives. In the normal day-to-day moments, and in the extraordinary moments where you pull back the curtains and help us to see the wonders of what you're doing. Lord, may this church fulfill the purpose for which it was planted in this neighborhood to pursue intentional gospel relationships that display Christ's glory among the nations. And for those of us who are in our midst who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself today as Christina experienced in that sweet, sweet moment. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.